on my pump. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Hello, my name is Liam Bird and I cannot sing, but welcome one and all to episode 10 of Punks in Pubs on a Sunday. That's right, for you people who are slapping your phones on Thursday going, what the fuck, where's my shitty punk podcast? First off, take a moment, have a breath. I decided to move the podcast from Thursday to Sunday for work and, well, life commitments. So, uh, nothing to do with you, all to do with me. So on the day of the Lord, we stick the boot in and say, oi to the world. There's space for both of us, I feel. Anyway, let's move on to Double Digit episode, episode 10. So what do I have for you this time around? This episode is me in London with Justin Sloshberg, lead singer of the London-based post-hardcore band Hell Is For Heroes. Hell Is For Heroes were a band for me who, when I was at university, were always being played. The album, The Handshake, is 15 years old now. I can't believe that. It makes me feel so old. But Hell Is For Heroes have recently got back together to celebrate that album. First time they've been together in near 10 years I don't count the support they did for 100 reasons they went out up and down the UK and sold out headline shows and it was phenomenal so I reached out to Justin and we sat down in London in King's Cross beautiful sunny day we sat in the street people took pictures of us as we had a chat such as signing to EMI and the stupid perks that came with that dealing with the hype that also came with major signing to a major and the rapid rise that can come with that and then coming to terms with the fall we talk about my home city of Nottingham in particular the place that we both used to love going to Rock City we discussed the concept of straight edge and how we both like the idea of it but probably could never keep to it i discovered justin nearly had a stroke with death we also get political towards the end of the podcast we discuss justin's other job as a lecturer at a university in london and of course we talk about the album that still holds up the neon handshake anyway we've got all that but please stick around after the podcast as you'll be listening to my friends from canada the follow-ups until then people are punk and those just visiting i give you episode 10 of punks in pubs bullshit <laughs> and uh, it doesn't want to work for me so let's do that I'll also put on my shades so we look cool together excellent as, as we try and do you've got to try and look cool I know right <laughs> this is literally my ethos of my life is try and look cool yeah probably not <laughs> um, so okay let's let's kick this off so we are at a side <laughs> we're literally at the side of the road uh, foot traffic's going past cars are going past but it's okay because spring has sprung. Yep. It's quite beautiful. And I am sat next to a man who is a. Uh, would you call yourself a journalist? A journalist? No. Yeah. No. Could you, I mean, could you, you've put out 
a couple of bucks and you've researched them so and you've yeah I research got your I face write, on Al Jazeera and BBC yeah, uh, more as a kind of uh, commentator for want of a better word than a journalist yeah uh, I think journalists the one defining feature of journalists is that they live by a certain kind of time pressure that I could never endure <laughs> um, I'm generally as my wife would Attest, uh, quite a slow person. So uh, um, I kind of like to take my time, particularly with writing. Um, and I think journalists just these days in particular don't have that luxury. Okay, I'll continue to pick you up when I was a journalist then. Uh, <laughs> author, uh, lecturer, co founder of the uh, Media Reborn Coalition, which was Reform. Reform. Yeah. Sorry, I haven't got my actual glasses <laughs> Reborn on. Reborn is a whole different meaning. <laughs> And most importantly, lead singer of Hell is for Heroes. Hello, Justin. Hi. I was going to go for your last name, but I, I, I'm dyslexic, so sometimes when I try and pronounce people's last names, I completely balls it up. How do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Schlossberg. Schlossberg. I see, I would have honest, not done that To be right. honest with you, there's, there's so many variations and interpretations that I think anything will do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's quite an unusual name. Where, 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 do you know like the origin? Uh, well... It's Yiddish, but it means the same as German. So a lot of people think it's German, but it means uh, castle on a hill. Oh. Um, it's about as much as I know, really. <laughs> it's quite poetic, last, like castle on a hill, or castle, I should say, because I'm northern. Yeah, I think probably uh, my ancestors had ideas above their station. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's nice. So have you always been quite an academic person, like as a kid? No, I'm quite a shamefully unacademic academic uh, probably the best example of that is if you walk into my office you could probably count the number of books on one hand I got into academia really much for the same reason that I got into a rock band which is because firstly it's a job that doesn't involve having a boss <laughs> yep. and secondly it's a platform for self-expression. Yeah. So uh, you say you haven't got that many books, but is that just because you're not a reader, or <laughs> are you uh, an audio book guy? No. I, I, I mean, I, I, I do read in in kind of spits and spurts. Um, probably not as much as most academics, but I don't like collecting things. I've never really had a music collection either. No. So if I, you know, if I buy a book, I tend to read it and give it away or you know I, I, I don't like amassing things so you don't even have like a music collection like some of the st some of your older Hell's Hero stuff like do you have any old t-shirts any posters or there's none nothing, of that nothing I don't, I don't even have any of our records literally nothing <laughs> uh, I've kept nothing and again not for I mean not for any conscious reason yeah uh, I'm just a compulsive loser um, <laughs> I, I lose all material artifacts that come about my person at any given time. Um, How many sunglasses point. have you lost? Oh, I'm countless. the worst of sunglasses. Countless. I mean, I, I even had to get a, a tattoo on my wedding finger because I just couldn't possibly hold on to a ring. <laughs> so... What were you like as a kid then? Because, like, were you always, like, music first? Or was it, I'm quite a good student? Uh, neither. Uh, no? I, I wasn't... I, I mean, I was... I, I was I was lucky in that I was the kind of student that 
could get away with it uh, that is to say I could kind of pass or get reasonably good marks w- without um, putting in a whole lot of effort oh, you're the kind of person I hate yeah oh, just uh, freezing I, I through life I hate myself <laughs> <laughs> um, but I uh, yeah music as well I was never more particularly more into music than the next kid really it yeah. was just uh, what it was so what age did you start discovering music then were you, were you was there something that kind of turned you on you were like oh shit I really love this not particularly doesn't have to be punk but anything in particular like was it was your family quite a musical family not particularly uh, I mean I've there's there's I guess there's performance in my genes my, my late grandfather was um, kind of impressionist entertainer that was at one point in the 1930s headlining the London Palladium um, cool but no there's no real music as such in my family I guess there were sort of key moments like everyone has so I think when I was 13 my brother got me into Disintegration by The Cure and that was like the first proper record yeah that I ever listened to and that felt like something completely new like oh wow so this is this is music yeah uh, and when I was 17 I did my first tab of acid and in a very cliched way listened to Dark Side of the Moon over and over again <laughs> yeah and thought this is the most unbelievable record ever made and some ways still do and a couple of years later I was in LA and I stumbled across Enema by Tool yeah uh, that again was a big game changer musically so yeah just just sort of moments like that that everyone has but yeah I, I never considered music and I still don't as a particular calling I think you know like as I said it's just a it's a vehicle for self-expression uh, it's an opportunity to get carried away and that's what I enjoy most so I mean you've spoken about uh, music being a form of expression when you um, sorry just got a picture taken by a random <laughs> um, so when you started discovering punk music was that what turned you on was it was it more the people trying to express themselves in a, an aggressive way or was it actually the sound of it that you enjoyed I think a mixture of, of all I mean uh, I think probably first and foremost the songs I think that's you know uh, the songs of uh, you know by bands like Fugazi and The Clash I, I suppose I got in really uh was attracted to that kind of slightly more political, self-reflexive branch of punk that yeah. emerged in the 80s, but also to the aesthetic. And I know that the kind of punk aesthetic means lots of different things, lots of different people, lots of different times, but, you know, to me, it always meant just being awkward yeah, uh, and, and not fitting in. And I think that that's the thing that kind of fundamentally spoke to me about that that whole tradition I, I admired uh, in many ways the kind of straight edge movement even though I've never been straight edge myself you know, I admire just like I, I admire vegetarians yeah. you know I consider myself just a much weaker person uh, so is it the discipline you, you kind of admire really? I admire the discipline I admire, I admire the, the, the politics of it I, you know that, that, that kind of anarchist you know that it, it, it sort of smacks of that that kind of anarchist tradition of 
you, you get this in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Yeah. Uh, I'm making myself sound like I read more than I do now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this idea that... Right on the poster. Yeah, this idea that, that, that the kind of drugs and drink and soma is actually a very useful way to control a population, yeah. really. Just to kind of stop them perceiving their own kind of material reality, uh, the reality of their material existence. So, yeah, and, and I, I sort of got a sense of that as well from the little that we glimpsed of the music industry, which is quite a few years ago now, and I'm sure it's changed, but there was this sort of culture that actually, you know, what, what good little bands do is they get you know very drunk and very high and they have lots of sex and they get arrested and they get into trouble they're a bit like oasis and what they don't do is like get involved with how we want to kind of package and market and sell them you know and all of that stuff and so i i was i was kind of conscious of that as well that you know no one likes an artist that tries to like think yeah, in, it <laughs> yeah. will think outside of what they're supposed yeah. to think of, you know. And to me, it's like I, I, I've always felt sensitive to not just doing the kind of songs that we want to do and, and records that we want to make in the way that we want to make it, but but how we kind of made to look and how yeah. we're presented, um, you know. And some people interpret that as being a kind of some kind of diva or uh, megalomaniac control freak uh, and I suppose there is an element of that too you know lead vocal syndrome and all that and it's hard you know I think nowadays I'm, I'm probably you know I care much less uh, about things in general so can you remember a time whereabouts you, you've been kind of pushed into that situation whereabouts like you had to do the generic alternative press photo or Kerrang cover whereabouts they're trying to make you start like trying to star you into something you wasn't and oh yeah there was like a playing lot the of game that. really well there was a lot of that I mean you know there's you know, there's a point where you know very oddly for a band like us there were, you know we, we were assigned stylists oh, really? you know, professional okay, stylists yeah. you know who god bless them had no fucking idea what to do with us <laughs> uh, you know and because we didn't look like any we didn't look like we should look like yeah. you know uh, we didn't have any piercings or tattoos and and it comes back to this thing you know that the the aesthetic that i think we were always drawn to is that awkwardness uh, and that you know style most stylists don't get yeah <laughs> um, you know and we had a lot of it with videos and and kind of professional photographers you know all of that kind of stand in a certain way and look mean and look rock and look you know and it's just yeah. like oh Jesus you know really yeah. you know just cliche after cliche but you know let's say nowadays I care a lot less and to a certain extent you just you just roll with it and it's just you know you gotta you can't get caught up with your own self-importance I think that's the other the other kind of trap do you have the time to kill let's go
You went to university in my hometown of Nottingham. Oh, wow. Were you attracted by the myth of five women to one man? Can you remember that? I do remember that, and I do remember <laughs> being uh, that being a major draw. Um, you know, because I was uh, an awkward 19-year-old with very little sexual experience uh, for someone my age. Uh, so, of course, I'd be attracted to that. Um, were you disappointed when you got there and were like, what very the fuck is all this sausage fest? I, I had even less sexual experience in my three years at Nottingham than I'd had, you know, <laughs> prior to that in my teens. So. You and me both, mate. Um, so <laughs> did you did you end, did you go to Rock City? I'm guessing you did. Like, for people did. listening, Rock City is like a legendary uh, music venue in Nottingham, played by, like, like Nirvana did quite a famous set there. One of my favourite gigs there were Ash when they were just, uh, like, 1979 album. They were just starting to kick on. Um, what about yourself? So, did you can you remember any gigs that you saw there and you really yeah, enjoyed? Yeah, not quite a few. Placebo sticks in my mind. That they did a great show there when I was on campus. Also, a band called Deus from Belgium, who I was really into at the time. Uh, I mean, actually, I had a really quite an, an emotional moment on this tour just gone by, where for you know for the first time we we kind of headlined that that big room yeah, in Rock City says, yeah. and after the show there was this kind of club night and I just I, I had a, cu- a couple of drinks and I went I left something in the dressing room and I just came back out and I just stood there you know on that dance floor in front of the stage and just thought you know wow this it's been like 20 years yeah um but in some ways, not a whole lot has changed. Yeah, it hasn't. Yeah, I'm actually going back there tonight after this interview. I'm jumping on the train. But it's a special place, especially downstairs in the... Uh, it used to be called the Rec Room. I don't know what it's called now. Yeah. But I used to love that small little venue. Yeah, we did some great shows in there yeah. back in the day. Really, really fun. It's, it's a great venue. Um, so what were you studying in Nottingham then? Uh, I did philosophy with politics. Yeah. Yeah, again, blagged a 2-1. Uh, <laughs> I went to uni, really, because I thought it was the best... Not just because of the five to one gender ratio, but I thought it would be the best place to to join a band. I didn't really appreciate, as as no one does when they're nineteen, yeah. you know what universities are. And when I went back ten years later, I did realise, you know, and I suppose particularly now they're just like as fucked up as universities are. They are still in some ways these kind of little oases of creative space 100% yeah. I mean I, I gained nothing from my university degree I did it in, I did a media degree in the University of Luton because I like stabbing with my university and like I, I feel if I just went off and did work experience I would have got further in my career than probably where I am now but the experience that I had at university has definitely shaped me into the human I am now with my politics and, and my musical taste and my beliefs and everything really it's, it's definitely enlightened me as a person and made me a better person For I just sure. wish I didn't spend 30 grand to make me a better person but yeah well I was I, you know I was one of the lucky ones I was the last class really to before education. they introduced the yeah the yeah. top ups and I just think that is the most tragic loss really is that this whole idea that actually universities are just these kind of factories to produce uh, people that will fit inside the industrial employment sector or the service employment sector and that as you say is just fundamentally not what universities historically have been and should be Hmm. you know they're places for 
for social activism, for uh, you know creative thinking. That this is the only opportunity that most people have in their lives to to kind of think and act in ways that they're just unable to when they get into the the rigors of you know day-to-day work and family and life normal life and i just think that's that is the most tragic loss or you know it's not completely gone yeah. but it, we're losing it so you were talking about how in nottingham you were kind of doing some bands so what were you doing before you joined hers heroes and also what brought you back to london was it a case that you wanted to really push music no i, I mean i was raised in london my family and friends in london you know i am i guess at heart a big city person uh and you know as much as anyone i i kind of love to hate and hate to love london i was just a sort of wandering wandering lost soul really you know i had a few as everyone does kind of the run of depressing jobs that i couldn't hold down (laughs) you know i was to a certain extent chasing a dream and then yeah i was lucky enough to get in a band that you know i could do for the best part of 10 years as my job so that band uh, obviously the band we're talking about is Hell is for Heroes the rest of the guys were all school friends is that correct and you kind of joined from a friend of a friend introducing you how was that like as a dynamic was it weird kind of breaking into that school friendship group did you ever feel like the outsider or did did they embrace you straight away and you feel good Uh, let me be honest with you I've being an outsider is just entirely natural to me I felt like an outsider in every single institution that I've ever been a part of you know uh, from family to school to university to jobs to careers is that because you 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 don't want to like no I've I've just got the wandering Jew curse and blessing (laughs) for whatever it is it's worth you know I just I, 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 you know, I find it very difficult to kind of fit in and have that sort of sense of of belonging. Um, but weirdly, probably did more so with the band than any other group that I've been a part of. Yeah. And I think that's partly to do with the, the fact that we're probably all in our own way misfits of sorts. You know, and as I say, we never looked like a band uh, certainly not a rock band and uh, I think there was there was a kind of quite a deep connection that was never really acknowledged or talked about and and shouldn't have been yeah but yeah I'm, I'm quite I consider myself very lucky to have been you know to be part of it so what year did you join the band uh, so this was 2000 I think 2000 yeah. and um, so between that period of 2000 and 2003 when your debut came out how was that was it did you instantly realise these guys are onto something or was it oh fucking hell like what am I doing uh, no I think it was pretty instant I think it was pretty instant I think you know even when we the first time we met in the pub yeah as I say I think you know, we were all conscious of a connection and certainly in rehearsals. And I think there was just an honesty to what we did. I mean, we, to a certain extent, we were, in the, in those early days, we were kind of chasing the dream. And, you know... But we were doing it in a way that I think other bands weren't. Yeah. I mean, I can give you one example. We used to rehearse in this industrial hellhole in Acton in one of the they're kind of probably one of the dirtiest 
stinkiest rehearsal rooms in London, which is really saying something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we EMI wanted to uh, come down to one of our rehearsals. This is before we got a record deal. And our manager was like, oh, you know, I'm going to book you into these fancy, you know, central London studios. I think they were called the Ritz or something. And we'll do a whole kind of showcase. And we were just like, nah, they, they can come down to Acton. And so literally we had these kind of uh, record industry chiefs. I think the boss of EMI and, and his henchmen <laughs> come down to this just sweaty hellhole of an industrial estate and this tiny little rehearsal room and we got them to perch on the end of an amp and we just played so fucking loudly (laughs) that I just think we scared the utter shit out of them to a point where they just felt that they had to give us a record deal they weren't getting out alive yeah (laughs) so why am I then? I mean how many other labels were sniffing around? And also, was it the draw of the fact it's EMI? As much as like the record industry has now gone to shit, like EMI is still a label that is going to go down in history as one of the best labels ever. I mean, they they they've had the Beatles. For yeah. I mean, uh, I think at the time there was there was like a couple of other la- labels sniffing about. I think we just went with the one that was offering us the most money. To be honest with you, yeah, Freddie's. Uh, I don't think we were particularly idealistic about it. And obviously there, there is quite a, obviously a rich tradition there that felt like a dubious honour yeah. to be a part of in some way. Let's talk about Neon Handshake, the album that came out, and it was for some reason it grabbed everyone's attention, and not just punk or hardcore or rock fans. It grabbed what I would call people dabbling in in guitar-based music at the time. And you guys were being played on Radio One, and you're being played on MTV Two. Um, and I can remember like watching 120 minutes, and every time I hear. Um, is it could I climb mountains? Yeah. Yeah, like that always reminds me of just sitting in my uni house getting stoned like late at <laughs> night, 2 a.m. And it's just one of those songs that takes me back to when I was at university. So, why do you think it struck a nerve at that time? Well, if I'm honest with you, I think it's partly to do with the fact that in those days at least, you know, that's kind of just what big record companies were good at. They were yeah. good at just exposing you and getting you played on radio and getting you, you know, magazines to write about you. So uh, to a certain extent, a lot of it was was a kind of somewhat artificially generated hype that we just rode along with. Uh, <laughs> and so you should. And quite enjoyed. But I think that, 
you know, in terms of what the music meant to people, you know, it's weird that now, you know, we've just done this tour looking back in 15 years, I think people think that that album was a lot bigger and, and more important than it was at the time. I think at the time it was actually, from the record company's point of view, certainly a bit of a flop. Yeah. You know, what what matters now is that I think that people still feel a connection with the songs and I think that there's a kind of there's an energy and a spirit that we captured on the record um, that still has some kind of resonance for people and for us yeah uh, surprisingly and I think you know that's really down to full credit to us really because we were quite insistent on I think we were kind of aware that it was a, it was a rare opportunity even in those days to make a record that we wanted to make and so we were quite insistent on resisting some of the sort of pressures that go along with being you know on a big label and having all that money thrown at you yeah. and I think that's the thing looking back on you know looking back that I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of I think you know we, we weren't really interested in in having kind of big name producers or you know uh, all the kind of glossiness uh, that that sometimes people try to kind of force you in those situations we were just like no we just want to make the record that we want to make so how did you deal with that like sudden surge of popularity as humans because all of a sudden signed to EMI being on the front cover of uh, Enemy Kerrang and all that sort of stuff being played on Radio 1 and MTV how did you keep your ego in check because that is a lot I don't think there's any person in the world who could not go holy fuck look at us yeah I think uh, what is very easy to do and that we did do for a little while is you fall into this trap of of uh, your own imagined self-importance yeah. uh, and that you know somehow whatever you do you know whatever songs you write whatever records you make whatever shows you play is like the most important thing to happen in the universe <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know I'm I'm very grateful in some ways that we were able to escape that bubble fairly quickly largely due to the fact that we didn't have a platinum selling album <laughs> um, so you know that kind of made it easier to see the wood from the trees and, and actually when you strip it down is really about good times and you know it's just about what happens in the shows uh it's not you know everything else is is really just frills i know that's a bit of a cliche as well but you know some cliches are true yeah because otherwise <laughs> there won't be cliches yeah, like everyone's yeah, exactly. saying it so uh you suffered a brain hemorrhage didn't you when a minor mm. one how the fuck did that happen uh well actually it wasn't that minor uh it was um I had a sort of 50-50 survival odds oh, uh, and I got away with it I think it was bound to happen really I think you know the, the, um, <laughs> it was written in the stars well I mean I think our, there was an intensity to our shows you know part of what made them so exciting and enjoyable from my perspective is that it was totally out of that sense of being completely out of control and you know not knowing what's going to happen next yeah I think uh, that particular show I managed to collide heads with a fan on stage um, the other fan's dead now 
No. They, they didn't survive. No, they... <laughs> they had the they, other 50-50. They got out scot-free. I think that they uh, had a harder head than I did. Where were you? Uh, that was in Geneva, I think. Okay. You guys split with EMI, and then you decided to go with an indie. Was that a conscious decision that you wanted to go with an indie, or was it a case that majors weren't asking? Oh, they wouldn't touch us with a barge pole. <laughs> I, mean, I, th- I think there was a kind of there was a sort of rude, rude awakening that we were never going to be the band that they thought they were, yeah, that they thought we could be. I yeah. think I think for a sort of weird moment that you know, big record labels thought that rock bands like us could be, you know, as big as Coldplay or whatever else. And I think, you know we were a very short sharp reality check for them that actually you know the kind of bands that we identify with are bands that just yeah it's just the kind of music that doesn't sell that many records to be honest with you so uh yeah i don't think it was anything particularly idealistic we again we were lucky enough to be with a label that we identified with and with a lot of bands on their roster burning heart epitaph to be honest with you we've always had the attitude that we'll put our record out with anyone and or anything if it's just the record that we want to make you know we'll play shows anywhere with anyone anytime if we just play the shows that we want to play you know far be it from me to to kind of judge people that want to give us an opportunity or a platform Mm. to do what we do it's totally different if they say you know, oh, we'll give you money to do this record if you sound like Lost Profits, <laughs> which is what actually uh, someone actually more or less did say to us. I won't kind of name any names, but yeah, I think as long as we, we're happy, you know, we're allowed to just do what we do, then yeah. we've never really cared about that stuff. So how fucked up are you hearing the troubled second album as, as, as I've, a lot of interviews I've read of, of you guys they've always talked about your second album as the troubled second <laughs> album which I think is quite insulting really for any band to be called like any album they put out as a troubled second album because fuck you go write an album yeah. uh, how, how is it because you went from your first album being a commercial success and then your second album not reaching the heights of that success but still being like thought of quite fondly with within the Hell is a Hero fan base so yeah. I mean how did you how did you deal with that especially going from major to indie and not having all the perks of flying euphemism of first class going back to coach yeah I think um Inevitably, I mean, to be honest with you, there is some truth in it because I think we were caught in that weird place where, you know, the record company had obviously lost money on our album and we're like, uh, you know, if you want... And, and there was like a new MD in, in town and, you know, all of that shit that happens with, with big companies yeah. very frequently. And he was like, okay, you know, write some songs, but I need to hear something that, you know, that I think is going to make a return for yeah. one of a, a better phrase and we so we were writing songs and he was like oh no write some more I'm not happy with that I'm not happy with that and it just got to a point where it's just like actually this is this is not what we do this is not what we can you know not not, not because you know not out of any sense of self-righteousness or anything it was just we can't be the band that you want us to be because yeah. we won't even deliver on your measures of success you know we won't be you know, we won't sell that, that many records. So, what's the point in trying? Yeah. Uh, and and if we did try, then we would we would kind of lose the connection 
that we had made with the people that that got into our first album and you know and I think we've always been sort of conscious of that you know not trashing our name you know by trying to be something that we're just not and so we were just like look this is we've got the album now that we want to make and we understand it's not for you so let us go Uh, and that's what what happened really and it was it was a very I think in many ways probably quite an amicable split and yeah I mean I, the, the second album you know again we were sort of that was probably the peak of, of our kind of bubble if you like and, and all thinking that it's you know ultimately more important than it is or, or, and to be fair we were all kind of like we didn't want you know to have to get day jobs and yeah. you know uh, so there was kind of that that was all infecting that that kind of natural spontaneity that you know we had in the beginning and that you know is what it's all about really but there's still i think you know a couple of our best ever songs on that record uh certainly our best ever video you know that we did yeah and i'm I'm, again i kind of i'm proud of the fact that you know we didn't just do what we're told guys decided to take a pause or break I mean hiatus is a is a word that has many meanings um, yeah. I mean was that was that a group decision or were there some people who wanted to keep going no I, I think we were kind of we were very conscious that we had, we were flogging this to death yeah. I mean you know it's only I, I think I think there's this kind of big myth around rock bands that you know the only way you get anywhere is to just tour and tour and tour and i just think actually it's just not true and you're much better off offering less and doing less but just making sure that whatever you do is just better than the last thing that you did and i think that was a kind of lesson that we quickly learned along with the fact that we all wanted to do other things with our lives i mean the thought of trudging around europe in a van you know in getting into our kind of middle age and that being the kind of be all and end all of our lives I think was a bit depressing I think that although we did chase the dream the dream was never a big enough pull for us yeah you know and I think we we did manage to escape that that bubble and and I think now you know coming back to it it's just made it all the more interesting and and exciting um that we did that how are you doing for time? You, you good? Yeah, I'm all right. All right. Just because I'm, I'm interested to know how a man from a... Do you like the term post-hardcore, by the way? It's just a term. Don't mind it. Yeah. It could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely. It's just that I, uh, whenever I speak to like people who get dubbed pop-punk, 
they have such a bee in their bonnet about I think it's just because they're either believe themselves as a rock band because yeah. I think that's what everyone really wants to be it's just a rock band unless you're hardcore punk punk so yeah I just want to make sure post punk how you felt uh, we want a book called Disco Rock nice so, I, honestly I'll be uh, you know I'm, I, that, that stuff doesn't bother me yeah. I, I think it doesn't mean that much to me but if it means something to other people and it, you know it kind of it helps in some way to sort of make sense of what it is we do that's fine um, you know it just is what it is really so how did you go from being in a band to all of a sudden becoming a lecturer at at London University so I went back to school I think probably I was determined to have a career that didn't involve having a boss hmm. and I think academia is quite a natural step in some ways because it's one of those few jobs where you do have not only a platform for self-expression of sorts through teaching and research and writing but you have that kind of autonomy to sort of think and in some ways you know more so than the music industry which is quite a conservative beast in the end always has been yeah. uh, you know there's much more subtle creeping pressures to conform to you know what other bands are doing or you know what's hot right now <laughs> than there is in academia where pretty much no one cares what you do anyway so yeah. <laughs> definitely the audience for you know what I write write about and teach is even smaller than it was for my band and that kind of suits me fine so am I right in saying you went to Harvard as well or did you go uh, I spent a semester there I did, um, did find that? just as a as a visiting research fellow it was quite weird and quite surreal. I mean, again, I think I was I was probably seduced by the the kind of elitism of it. I was very quickly also aware of just how deeply corrupt those kinds of institutions are and corrupting. Yeah, it's a similar way to the music industry. Just a lot of mutual backslapping and and this kind of club. That, that tends to form in around the, the sort of top echelons of whatever, you know, industry or kind of subculture that you're a part of. And, and I think, you know, again, it comes back to that, you know, what attracts me to the punk aesthetic, but it, I, I think I have a very deep-seated and instinctive resistance to it. But it was good, it was interesting to see it from the inside. i 
Yeah, you wrote a book called uh, Media Ownership and Agenda Control, The Hidden Limits of Information Age. Yes. So where did your interest from the media come from? Like, what was it? Is it just that you sat at home and you consume it and you're like, what the fuck am I being told? Uh, or was it also spending your time in America because news there isn't impartial like it's meant to be over here? To be honest, it came from being in a band. You know, I think probably... Well, actually, it comes, comes from doing my undergrad at Nottingham, hmm. uh, you know, where I was sort of in, first introduced to, you know, manufacturing consent by Chomsky and Herman, that sort of classic sort of Marxist-anarchist take on, on what the kind of mainstream or commercial media does in terms of what they call a, a propaganda model yeah. to serve the interests of a power elite. And I think, you know, when, when we were in a band, I was always kind of sensitive to you know the way in which kind of power operates in the cultural and creative industries and corrupts you know creativity and ultimately democracy and i yeah. think that's what led me to that research interest when i went back to university uh, i mean I'm, i i focus more on news because i think for issues to do with power and democracy it, it's it's more directly relevant than you know music or wider creative industries but yeah they're all kind of interconnected and if you see you know what the effects are of conglomeration in these industries in the music industry in the film industry in the publishing industry and in the news industry it's there there are some kind of interesting parallels because ultimately it does tend to produce this uh, growing pressure of conformity and and a, and a kind of um, mainstreaming of of popular culture and you know nowadays people say well that doesn't matter because you know we've got the internet and pretty much anything uh, that anyone is interested in is available at the click of their fingertips but the reality is it's much more of a kind of apartheid structure uh, so what you still have is that that kind of mass media mainstream bubble yeah. uh, that exists alongside this, these, this kind of endless these endless niche cultures and I think that's not particularly good for democracy or justice or creativity I mean we're doing a podcast let's talk about uh, let's talk about podcasts like can you see a point whereabouts podcasts are influenced I mean I, I, in America podcasts are, are far more of a medium than it is I think in the UK and like there's there's a lot of podcasts like Pod Save America that are quite influential now I think to, to younger generations of people who are into politics so do you see that as being a platform where that's people are going to start trying to major publishers are going to start thinking okay this is a way that we can actually start influencing people in the way they think and the way they vote and advertisement yeah I mean I think ultimately anything that reaches a certain degree of of mass appeal becomes co-opted in some way by you know the market or the state or whatever it is but i generally i you know i think that the whole podcast phenomenon is a positive thing i think it's positive because unlike you know audiovisual documentaries it's it's easier and cheaper to produce yeah it's accessible and it's also something that in a way is is a kind of departure from the 
150 character limit tweet. Yeah. You know that that the there is something about the kind of instantaneity of popular culture today, where I think we're being conditioned to consume things with a kind of immediacy that doesn't allow us to really kind of reflect and and just enjoy you know it, it, it comes back to this whole issue of time but i think you know there what podcasts represent to me is that kind of renewed thirst amongst people to actually consume culture in depth yeah you know to to kind of not just rely on on sound bites or status updates or you know one or two line comments but actually see whatever it is that you're doing documentaries film music as as some kind of immersive experience so i think that's generally healthy i mean what is it that you're actually a lecturer on? we never actually touched on it uh so officially journalism and media but i teach really across the sort of cultural studies yeah. uh spectrum really so i'm, I'm ultimately into interested in questions of ownership and gatekeeping power um and that transcends as i said you know the entertainment music film publishing industries but mainly i'm mainly concerned with news have you had any of your pupils go holy shit any, like, what, any of your pupils go holy shit you're that guy from Hell's Heroes uh, a couple yeah, yeah. Uh, it's quite weird yeah. is it embarrassing or is it like yeah fucking am yeah no, look at me being a cool lecturer I think, I think it, it, it would have been embarrassing you know to me a long time ago because I was a lot again just probably a bit more caught up in it than I am now but now it's just it's just nice it's you know it's 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 a it's a nice feeling that you know that, that people kind of care about it and remember it you know, particularly after all this time, I think yeah. it's it's quite quite gratifying. So let's start coming back to more present day and start wrapping up. Um, Twenty thirteen, you went back on tour. Uh, well, you supported a uh, hundred reasons. Yeah. I went to the Manchester show, loved yeah. it. I'm a massive hundred reasons fan, and yeah. uh, it was nice to see you guys as well. Because yeah. and but in those interviews, you said that you weren't. That's it. We're just going to come back, do this, and then fuck off back to our day jobs. You've now just finished a, uh, a headlining tour, setting out quite big shows. Yeah, and it sounds. And from other interviews, it sounds like you're actually thinking about putting some music together, maybe putting out an EP or something. I mean, what what was it that sparked? What like how did it all come about? Did 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 Hundred Reasons approach you and say, guys, come on? let's do this because it'd be fun or was it one of you guys in the band reached out to the other guy and went hey how about we just go and jam and see where it goes well let me no I mean we've always been a fairly uniquely lazy band that doesn't tend to kind of take initiative in that way (laughs) Uh, so everything that we've done certainly since the days in which we were you know kind of a properly active band has been really at I wouldn't say kind of uh, we've been conjoled into it but Mm. yeah someone's kind of said to us you know why don't you do this and to be honest most of the times we just say a polite no although it's always flattering and humbling to be asked I think we did those 100 reason shows because they're you know they're friends of ours and it it just felt like something fun to do and I think we were surprised that it you know that it still felt you know so kind of fresh and and uh exciting and then we did these shows 
I suppose it's just a combination of reasons. I mean, for one thing, you know, we got offered a decent amount of money. But again, we were kind of really surprised about how easy it was to do. Yeah. Uh, how easy it was to reconnect with the songs, how easy it was to reconnect with audiences. But I think probably what we're acutely sensitive to, um, and maybe more than some other bands, is uh, that we just don't want to do something that is in any way not better than than what we've done before and you know or in any way contrived or forced or you know trying to be a band that we were or a band that we're not um so you know as i think that's hopefully going to be the only thing that guides us going forward and you know we are we have started writing again but you know not for any reason other than you know we just have ideas you know we're kind of fortunate that we have an audience so uh you know we're not dependent on it for our livelihood yeah. so we're in this slightly luxurious position where if we do it it probably only would be for good reasons um but at the same time we're conscious of not trying to do something just for the sake of riding a wave you know if the songs work and if it comes together in a way that feels is not just as good but in some way kind of builds on what we've done before and speaks to who we are now as to who we were then or you know anything else then for sure i think we'll do something well i hope we do hear something in the year or 2019 thanks thanks for spending the morning with a coffee in the sun in our face thanks for the coffee no my pleasure man and uh all the best cheers Thank you to Justin for taking the time to talk to me in London and spending the morning with me. Also, thank you to Kevin over at Big Scary Monsters for putting me in contact with Justin. The 15th year anniversary release of Neon Handshake is available on Big Scary Monsters, uh, so go and pick up your copy. It still holds up amazingly well today. Anyway, that's the end of episode 10. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please go and check out the past nine episodes. I'm sure you'll find something you like. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review and all that jazz. Uh, The podcast is free, so please help a brother out. Tell your friends. Spread the word verbally and digitally. And digitally? Digitally. How the fuck do you say digitally? Is it like that? I don't know. If you tell five people this week about this podcast... That'll be handy. So why don't you do that? Go tell five people about a podcast. Try and turn them onto it. Follow the podcast on all social media, now reluctantly on Facebook site. What can I say? I'm a sucker for advertisement. I've seen them on news all day and I thought, ah, maybe I should put the podcast on Facebook. Well, we've got one now. Uh, you'll also find us at Punks and Pubs on Twitter and Instagram. That's it from me. As always, if you go into a punk show, don't forget, if you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up. Playing at the show this week are a bunch of lads coming at you. 
uh, from Moncton, New Bushwick, Canada. This is a follow-up with their track, Half of It. Until next time, bye-bye.